reviewing the scientific literature to answer your questions about gender diversity, this is Classroom Psychology. And now here's your host, Dr. Cora Sargent. Hello everybody and welcome to Classroom Psychology. I'm your host, Cora. Thank you so very, very much for joining me. You are very welcome here. Hop on in. Let's grab a coffee together. And I've already had one, as you probably can hear. And and let's think about gender diversity a little bit more. This week, like we do every time we come together, we hear from a public figure or a politician or somebody who just likes to talk about gender diversity. And we take their often confidently declared statements for the question we hope they were intended to be. And we do our best to take a look to literature to see if we can't find an answer. Now, this week we have Helen Joyce. Now, For a long time, I've been listening to Helen Joyce and I often find Helen's uh, statements a little bit tricky uh, and maybe a little bit uh, extreme for the podcast, if I'm honest. Uh, You know, here on the podcast, we try to take all the statements uh, for questions. We treat them with the utmost generosity. But I got to tell you, often Helen Joyce's words are a little bit extreme for me to treat with generosity. And today is really no exception. But I do think that it's worth us taking a look at this statement and the question that it represents and see if we can't genuinely look to find an answer. So Helen Joyce, author, uh, best-selling author, in fact, Trans uh, is the name of her kind of uh, main, most recent book, When Ideology Meets Reality. Uh, I don't recommend you read it, uh, but I do recommend that you learn a little bit about who Helen Joyce is. Um, so Helen Joyce was on Wine with Woman, uh, Woman, Wine with Women, with just the one woman. Uh, Helen Joyce on Wine with Women with Helen Stanlard, uh, and this was last year, May last year. So here is Helen Joyce. We can't win this by saying, you know, there's 60x million people in this country, and we've got to persuade all of them or a great majority of them. We've got to get through to the decision makers. And in the meantime, while we're we're trying to get through to the decision makers, we have to try to limit the harm. And that means reducing or keeping down the number of people who transition. And that's for two reasons. One of them is that every one of those people is a person who's been damaged. But the second one is every one of those people is basically, you know, a huge problem to a sane world. Like if you've got people that, and whether they're transitioned, whether they're happily transitioned, whether they're unhappily transitioned, whether they're detransitioned, if you've got people who've dissociated from their sex in some way, every one of those people is someone who needs special accommodation in a sane world where we re-acknowledge the, the truth of sex. And I mean, the people who've been damaged by it, the children who've been put through this, those people deserve every accommodation we can possibly make, but every one of them is a difficulty. Yes. And I mean, I know that sounds heartless. I'm trying to say exactly the opposite of sounding heartless. I'm saying every one of those people for 50, 60, 70 years is going to need things that the rest of us just don't need because the rest of us are just our sex. So the, the fewer of those people there are, the better in the same world that I hope we will reach. Thanks so very much to Helen Joyce for her question posed, as they often are, in the form of confident declaration. And this one posed, you know, in my opinion, maybe slightly genocidally too. Helen Joyce here saying that, you know, gender diverse folk are a problem in a sane, in inverted commas, society, which I think is kind of a synonym for civilised society, right? In any civilised society, gender diverse folk shouldn't exist. And therefore, to heal our sick society, we should have less transgender and gender diverse folk in it. We need less of them. Now, that is obviously deeply, deeply troubling, but we're going to take it for the question. <laughs> we're going to take it for the question that we hope it was intended to be. And we're going to bear out this question in its what I think are colonial roots. You know, when we talk about either a sane or civilized society as being one that features no gender diverse folk, we really do hark back to our colonial roots. European and particularly British colonialism has been something that has essentially advanced that idea that genders and sexual experiences outside of the norm in inverted commas, outside a Western, you know, view, colonial view of what is normal, those experiences are wrong. They are, you know, uh, considered unhealthy or sinful or, you know, 
insane, perhaps, as we might see here. But actually, we're going to take that question and we're going to take a look at these experiences. Are gender diverse folk part of a sickness in society? Or maybe is the sickness in society the oppression of gender diverse folk? At the heart of the question, I think, lies the question, are gender diverse folk legitimate, right? Are they a part, a legitimate part of human diversity or are they a consequence of some problem in society? Are they, do they present a problem to any sane society? So let's take a look at that. Now, in order to do this, we're going to bear out the kind of colonial heritage of our history a little bit. Um, it's such a massive field of study and a, and a field of discourse, this question of kind of particularly British colonialism. We're going to take a look at some interesting research that, that cites and, and I think provides pretty good evidence that Britain is sort of the worst case scenario, right? We do some pretty terrible stuff when it comes to, you know, advancing uh this kind of view of gender as being binary and and this assignment at birth being sort of all there is, uh, you know, you're either male or female and any other positionality is considered wrong, or sinful or unwelcome. That's a position we've advanced around the world. And this evidence suggests that, you know, Britain has done this worse than any other, including, you know, other European colonial countries, right? So we did a, we did a really... I cannot express to you how amazing this literature is in demonstrating just how much we have done this around the world. And we're going to talk to it together. But as we talk to it, you know, there's, there's two things that I need to say. The first is that the authors, including authors that are sort of anthropologically trying to talk to and amplify the voices of indigenous cultural practices and, and practitioners and you know, people, essentially, they often inadvertently and inevitably kind of look at these practices through a colonial lens. And I am going to look at their work and these practices and peoples as, you know, through my own colonial lens. And there's something pretty profane about that act, I think. Like, you know, I've been advantaged by colonialism. I live in Britain and it's a wealthy country in no small part because of colonialism. So I've been advantaged by that, by the, that colonial heritage. And then for me, as somebody advantaged by colonialism to decry colonialism and its practices around the world seems like oddly profane, I think. But if I don't do this, if we don't do this, if we don't take the time to educate ourselves then we leave it in, you know, people who are marginalised, disempowered by colonialism to educate us. And it's not their responsibility to do so. It's our responsibility to educate ourselves. So I'm going to try to do that with you today. I've learned a lot reading this literature. Um, and I'm hoping that you'll learn a lot too with me. And together, we will absolutely get things wrong. I don't doubt that me stepping into this field is going to, yeah, I'm going to do things wrong and I apologize in advance, you know, like people who try to understand my experience and sometimes get it wrong. All we can do is do what we can. And when we know more, we do more. So let's know a little more today together. Let's take a look, see if we can't find an answer. Are gender diverse folk really uh, evidence of a problem in society or do they represent a problem to sane society or is uh, society a problem to gender diversity when it comes to post-colonial cultures let's take a look so i think our journey together starts with the question of the universality of gender diversity right the question at, the, at its heart is you know is the gender binary really all there is like is that at its heart the the right way to think about gender or is it sort of a, some kind of fundamental universal truth? And then gender diversity represents some kind of sickness or something has gone wrong, like a, a rare and pathological experience. Or is gender diversity the fundamental truth and this you know binary and artificial and colonial imposition and through the through that sort of imposition does that 
has that oppressed these kind of gender diverse practices and peoples? And I think, you know, spoiler warning, yeah, we're going to find that it absolutely has. So let's take a look. So uh, right at the start, let's talk about uh, pre-colonialism, right? Just before European colonialism, let's take a look at societies around the world and see what experiences of gender outside of the gender binary might have looked like. Now, not just outside of the gender binary, but also sort of transgressing the sort of binary views of gender, like moving across the boundaries. And it turns out that there are a bunch of them. And our journey here is going to begin in sub-Saharan Africa. We're going to find ourselves all over the place. Um, these experiences of gender outside of the binary or the of people moving across the binary are amazingly universal. You know, there are people who experience themselves in this way from completely separate cultures with nothing in common beyond this experience of gender. And the cultural practices, the local cultural practices and language then finds a way to describe and include people outside of the binary. And it's very, you know, it's, uh, it's sort of unique to those cultures, but it's surprising just how universal some of these experiences are. So I want you to listen out for the universality in here. So our journey starts uh, with Tamale in confronting the politics and non-conforming sexualities in Africa and a really cool study, which if you if you only have time to read one study today, read this one by Meira Lemieux and Stoffel in 2019, an exploratory journey of cultural visual literacy of non-conforming gender representations from pre-colonial Sub-Saharan Africa. It's really cool, this study. They basically, they, they roam through all of the kind of like literature and art that's been created in pre-colonial sub-Saharan Africa. And they look for examples of genders outside of the, of like the post-colonial binary that gets imposed. And we get to see some amazing examples of these experiences. In the late 1640s, a Dutch military attaché, now bearing in mind, of course, this, this is a colonial lens being applied to indigenous cultures, is not ideal, but it's sometimes the only documentation that we have of these experiences that, that existed today. So we sort of have to lean on it to some degree. Uh, they documented Nzinga, a warrior woman in the historical Ndongo kingdom of the Mbundu, located in, somewhere in modern day Angola, who ruled as king rather than queen. She dressed herself as a man and and surrounded herself with a harem of young men who dressed as women, who she considered her wives. Super fascinating. Then in the early 17th century, uh, from the historical region of Luanda in modern-day Angola, um, there was the evidence of a group known as the Chibados, um, men essentially who dressed as women and embodied female roles in society um, and were honoured in that position by the seam of things. Um, then there's uh, from modern day Ethiopia, uh, a group known as the Amhara tribes. Uh, there were people who were male bodied, who took female roles in society, known as the Wandawarad. And then there were female you know, people who were female bodied, who took male roles in society, uh, known as the Wandawande. And uh, again, you know, while for some this might have been uh, sort of more institutionalized and in sort of more embraced in the sort of uh, both systems and culture of the time, uh, even when it wasn't, people it looked like tended to take it at face value. Um, the anthropologists were finding that people of, of the Amhara tribes were having difficulty understanding why men would give up male privilege, but absolutely tolerated those who did so. Um, then in the Malay tribe from 19th century Ethiopia, um, people who were sort of male-bodied who embraced feminine roles in society were known as the Ashtime, um, and they performed tasks usually reserved for women uh, and occasionally had sexual relationships with men. In the southern Bantu societies from modern-day Gabon and Cameroon, um, anthropologists were finding a reversal of traditional gender roles uh, in female husbands who um, were essentially female-bodied people who were political leaders uh, and regarded as social males in society. Um, in the 1920s to the 1940s, ethno-historian Eva Meyerowitz um, 
uh, did some work among the Ashanti and Akan tribes um, in uh, the modern day, like the modern day equivalent of Ghana and the Ivory Coast and found men who dressed as women and engaged in relationships with uh, other men and they weren't stigmatized but accepted. Uh, so they took a sort of female role in society. I, you know, I, I use the term men here because that's the anthropologist line. I don't know whether these were people who identified as women or even whether that language is kind of a modern language can really be applied in the same way. So I'm going to use the language of the of uh, the ethno historian Eva Meyerowitz here. Uh, it's the best we can do. Um, during the 1600s in the kingdom of Motapa in southern Africa, sometimes uh, it's called Monomotapa, uh, but it's located around modern-day South Africa. Um, Christian missionaries in 1606 uh, found uh, uh, men in the Chibadi tribe uh, who themselves were known as Chibadi uh, basically dressed as women and took female roles in society as far as i can tell and um, really interesting again just these countless examples of of genders outside of the binary or or uh, genders of people who move across what would be otherwise typically gendered lines then we have kind of a fascinating and quite historic uh, quite controversial historical account of an Igbo woman named Ahebi Ugbabe um, born in the late 19th century who became king in colonial Nigeria um, the first woman to do so and she was known for uh, some particularly autocratic methods of rule but uh, amazing and among the Zande tribe in the historical Zandeland region of modern-day South Sudan, Central African Republic, and the Democratic Republic of the Congo, um, there was a blurring of gender roles observed in boys who served a role similar to a wife's performance, particularly in the smaller daily services she might do for her husband. And then there are two final examples, the Konso tribe from today's Ethiopia uh, and the Hausa people from modern-day Nigeria, both of whom had terms in their language to describe people who, um, who were essentially men who dressed as women in the world. Now, well outside of Africa, uh, we find that there are a bunch of experiences, evidence of people experiencing genders both outside of the binary and moving across the binary uh, in a bunch of places around the world. We start with the Mahu of Hawaii. Um, in pre-Christian Hawaii, the Mahu was a category of revered and admired individuals. To learn about the Mahu, we can find information from the, the Gay and Lesbian Review, which is very cool, from Lauria. Uh, Gender Fluidity and Hawaiian Culture. Very cool uh, piece of work. Uh, basically, we find that the Mahus were regarded as kind of keepers of certain customs. They played an important role in passing on their wisdom to the next generation. They were uh, important in traditional practices like the hula and chant uh, and passing on information to, to future generations. Um, now, historically, I think the you know, Mahu were considered people who were assigned male at birth, who took female roles in society. But in modern Hawaiian culture, uh, you know, people can encompass both genders and can be you know can em embrace a number of different uh, sexuality and gender identities in society uh, it's fascinating the history is really interesting the hawaiian mythology uh, suggested that um there was a power inherent in people who encompassed both genders and that was seen in the legend of laka the god uh, stroke goddess of hula who is believed to be a deity of mixed gender fascinating and um, absolutely brilliant having a, a deity of mixed gender how amazing is that and we find ourselves in the Fafafine of Samoa, uh, Kanemasu and Liki, uh, a beautiful title of their study, Let the Fafa, the Let Fafafine Shine Like Diamonds, beautiful, balancing accommodation, negotiation and resistance in gender non-conforming Samoans, counter hegemony. Um, in the Journal of Sociology, really interesting. Uh, in the Pacific Island country of uh, Samoa, a group of people assigned male at birth uh, identify as women. And the term fafafine, in fact, kind of translates to uh, in the manner of a woman, I think. Uh, so people who assign male at birth whose gender behaviours are, you to a larger or lesser extent, feminine fundamentally. Um, 
they're considered right now both integrated and marginalized in society um, and uh, finding themselves, I think, I think between two worlds, essentially, sort of in one sense, welcomed in mainstream society, but also the victims of quite a lot of oppression, probably not in any small part due to uh, sort of changing culture as a consequence of colonialism. Um, we'll come to it. In Tonga, there's uh, the Laetis, uh, or Laetis, I think, as it's, as it's uh, pronounced, if I'm right. Um, great piece of work by Amin and G uh, Girard in 2020, Insecurities and Strategies of the Laiti Community in Tonga and the Role of Business and Indigenous Reconciliation Practices. Um, fascinating piece of work, uh, essentially just kind of highlighting the importance of the Tongan Laiti uh, and important activists like Joey Jolene Mataele, um, in uh, pre-colonial Tonga, uh, Tonga had a fluid notion of gender and was pretty tolerant of same sexual relationships and uh, and of like what we would now describe as the of transgender population, what is termed late uh, lighty in, in Tonga. But um, again, due to kind of laws that you know, post-colonial criminalized homosexuality and cross-dressing um, and firmly rooted in sort of Christian uh, fundamentalism uh, now contribute to a kind of insecurity of, of the population in Tonga um, in a way that might not have been the case historically. Um, again, kind of fascinating stuff. We're going to talk more about um, sort of the colonial heritage here, but before that, I really want to just you get to the, the, these amazing universal experiences of gender and pre-colonial uh, completely diverse cultural experiences unified solely by the idea that there are genders outside of the norm and to indonesia we go with uh, Probably, I think one of my favorites, uh, one of my favorite titles, To Mistu in 2022, Thinking Through the Skin, but with K is in brackets. So it's Thinking Through the Sin and Thinking Through the Skin. Absolutely brilliant at the same time. Uh, so play on words. Wonderful to see. Uh, Indonesian warrior and the bodily negotiations of belonging across religious sensitivities. Uh, it's really an interesting uh, piece of work this from Indonesia and the Malay world um, basically describing how uh, Indonesian folk who have sort of more masculine bodies but who are feminine identified uh, often are considered to have both the heart and soul of a woman and are considered warrior in society um, and how challenging it is for warrior to exist in uh, a population where sort of more uh, sort of stringent or fundamentalist uh, Muslim religion becomes a, uh, creates a bit more of a problem for them to exist in much the same way that Christian religion does. Again, because similarly, it's considered that uh, within uh, sort of more fundamentalist Muslim religions in Indonesia, um, that uh, only really two genders are recognized. And then, you know, it's considered that people who are warrior or you know, people who fall outside of the norm in terms of gender are considered like sinful if not cursed um which is obviously creates an enormous problem for people finding uh, finding a, a place to belong in society right and then in indonesia uh, the bugis people the bugis uh, not quite sure how you pronounce that if i'm completely honest with you um and they are the most numerous of three major ethnic groups in south sulawesi in indonesia uh, they've form about three million people um, and fascinatingly they consider they recognize in mainstream society five genders not just two um, now i'm going to give you some definitions uh, the definitions are not exact because there's you know the the cultural practice doesn't doesn't translate particularly well neither does the language so we're, we're going to sort of just to give you a sense we're going to use some imprecise um, but sufficient I think uh, definitions so there's the Makunrai who are considered female women the Orani considered male men the Kalalai considered female men the Kalabai considered male women and the Bisu who are, known as, who are the transgender priests in society fascinating in and of itself you know as we just keep going around the world, we just find there are like these wonderful experiences that, you know, when you when you stop sort of uh, you if you don't place this kind of binary view of gender upon a society, if you just, you know, societies around the world 
evolved to consider actually maybe male and female just isn't sufficient to describe everyone's experience, which I think is fascinating. Now, in Thailand, the Gatoi um, uh, are basically transgender women or effeminate gay men in Thailand. Um, some some folks, including many Gatoi themselves, uh, consider themselves to be a third gender, but often, uh, you know, there are transgender women also in, in sort of mainstream Thai society who refer to themselves as fuying uh, women with a, a lesser minority refer, referring to themselves as fuying parafet song, um, uh, basically a second kind of woman, um, and only very few now referring to themselves as uh, gatoi. Um, but fascinating nonetheless, you know. Then we get to, uh, even in Europe, in Italy, um, even in the heart of Catholic Italy, in Naples, uh, there's a centuries-old phenomena of uh, what's known as feminelli or femminelli, uh, those assigned male at birth who dress and behave as women in Italian society. And then as we adventure around the world, uh, we head our way to Mexico. Uh, Ramirez and Munar in 2022, uh, hybrid gender colonization, the case of Mouche, uh, uh, spelled M-U-X-E-S, but I think it's pronounced Mouche, um, which is fascinating. Now, the Mouche are considered, uh, and were, you know, pre-colonial Mexico, Mouche were considered neither men nor women, but a Zapotec gender hybridity. Um, really interesting. Basically, like before Columbus and before European colonizers, anthropologists traced the acceptance of the people of this third gender in Mexico to a pre-Columbian era, which is like the 4,000 year period before the arrival of Columbus and European colonizers, right? Now, and it's sort of, you know, these kind of anthropologists highlight accounts of cross-dressing Aztec priests and Mayan gods who are both male and female. Uh, really fascinating. Now, in the 1500s, Spanish colonizers basically wiped this out by uh, by basically you know, creating this sort of... Uh, this, this heteronormative, heterosexist gender dimorphic view of of how gender should be and essentially forcing indigenous peoples to uh, convert to catholicism and that essentially sort of oppressed you know indigenous cultural practices almost out of existence as indeed it did with uh, indigenous experiences of gender outside of the binary but the isthmus of Tehuantepec, which is like the, the narrowest part of, of Mexico, uh, where the Gulf of Mexico is the closest to the Pacific Ocean, uh, therein lies a, a culture, a group of people who have managed to keep the ancient Zapotec traditions alive. And they live on there today, which is fascinating alongside the existence in mainstream society of the Mushe. And this is really interesting to me, uh, not least because you know essentially this is a this is a tradition that dates back thousands of years, a people and an understanding of gender outside of the norm in inverted commas that has existed for thousands of years, and now we get to interview people in you know, who are Mushe about their experience, and listen to this right so. Uh, this is uh, people who are Mushe in the Isthmus of Tehuantepec. Since I was young, I leaned toward feminine. I was bullied in school and in many conflicts. Now I work for public institutions and fight for transparency and inclusion. It's fine when they call me Mushe. What makes me sad and angry is when they call me Maricon, Puto, Yoto, which is, uh, like, uh, I, I can't. I can't say the translation, uh, it's uh, yeah, just derogatory. Uh, these names are a denigrative way to refer to us Mushe as perverse. This I won't tolerate. Our community formed more than 20 years ago in association with the extraordinary name Las Autenticas e Intrepidas Buscadores del Peligro, the authentic and intrepid seekers of danger, which Good Lord, that's the best freaking name I've heard in ages. How amazing. What a tradition. What a culture of rebellion and resistance. I love it. 
Since the Mouches community is respected and appreciated in our city, many politicians appear to use Mouches names in their election campaigns, and some politicians try to hijack the Mouche identity. Gender equality became a buzzword, and some politicians wanted to take away our name, authentic and intrepid. But thanks to Diosito, God, we have just legally registered our organization as a civil association to protect our identity. This is amazing to me, right? I'm going to read you some more quotes from from people who are Mouche, and I, I just I love it so much because it's it's such a unifying experience. How much this speaks to other experiences we've already described. You know, kids in the UK talking about their own experience. This isn't wildly different. As I was growing up, my father abused me violently and mentally. He declined to believe I was different. He never told me that he accepted me, that I am a mouche, but the nurses told me that my father spoke well of me and that he was proud of me. This is it's kind of beautiful, isn't it? And so, I mean, we've already talked about like the increased likelihood of, of people in the UK experiencing violence at the hands of parents because they're gender diverse. It's amazing to me. But the concept of LGBTQI isn't something that translates directly on, right? And we must be cautious of that. Here's a direct quote from a Mouche in Mexico. LGBTQIA plus is a Western term. We do not agree with this Western way of defining us. Mouche is not a new phenomenon. We've been living this way for centuries. Mouche reflects our role in society, which is not equivalent to LGBTQIA plus. Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Now, finally, the last place I want to go to, uh, because I mean, we've gone all the way around the world uh, looking for new experiences of genders outside of the binary. And I think the last place we need to go to, I mean, there may be others that I've missed, no doubt. But Native America is one which we must we must go to, you know, First Nations people in Native America. Um, there's some great work by Thomas McCoy Jeffries, Havakate, and uh, Nasawood, Leston, and uh, Platero, 2022, Native American Two-Spirit and LGBTQ Health, a systematic review of the literature in the Journal of Gay and Lesbian Mental Health. Now, these uh, they talk to the sort of pre-colonization experiences of gender-diverse folk in First Nations contexts. Now, they describe a group of folk who were expected to take on roles as medicine people, mentors, teachers, and healers who uh, sort of embodied a gender that was uncharacteristic, considered by, uh, by others to be uncharacteristic of the sex that they were assigned at birth. Now, in modern language, we might describe these people as two-spirit. But uh, there's a problem with that, which Jacobs draws our attention to. Uh, Two-spirit people, Native American gender identity and sexuality and spirituality um, from the University of Illinois Press. Really interesting. Jacobs says that you know while we might use the term two-spirit, actually the term probably wouldn't have been understood in those contexts. Jacob says that if we were to translate two-spirit into one of the Athapascan languages like Navajo and Apache, uh, the word probably would be understood to mean the person possessed both the living and the dead spirit simultaneously, which wouldn't be considered, he says, a desirable situation. And equally, if it were translated into the Shoshone, the literal translation would be ghost. So, like it probably wouldn't be understood in those terms, but actually the term of the time, Berdache, I don't know if I've pronounced that correctly, uh, is actually considered inappropriate now and insulting by a number of Native American and, and First Nations elders and people and anthropologists too. So we can't really use that either. So there really isn't a good term. We're going to probably use Two-Spirit uh, as we talk about these cultures, but we you know, these cultural practices and, and people, but, you know, you have to bear in mind that it's probably not an ideal term. What is clear is that many Native American and First Nations cultures did hold space for a third gender and called them various things, whether it be the Winkta from Oakota, the Ndali from uh, Navajo, uh, 
the Quido from the Tewa, Taina Waipe from the Shoshone, Debuds from uh, Paiute, uh, Ihamana from Zuni. They're just countless of these experiences that are sort of unified under this very broad banner of two-spirit, but which are diverse in their own right um, and describe various people and cultural practices that surround them, but are all united by the idea that there's a space and language in, in society for somebody from a third gender. So I think we're getting there. I think, you know, the first part of this question from Helen Joyce is, you know, is it are we to consider that in a healthy society only men and women exist and that by having gender diverse folk around actually that's a pathology that's a problem in a sane world actually what we find is that when we take a look at pre-colonial societies from around the world what unites these experiences that we've described is the idea that there are genders outside of the binary and genders outside of the kind of deterministic view of gender that you can be assigned at birth and that's the gender you are forever, regardless of how you feel on the inside. And what this describes to me is that genders outside of the binary and outside of that essentialist deterministic view of gender are just part of society. They're just a part of the experience of being human, whether it be in Africa, whether it be in Native America, whether it be in India, we haven't even had the chance to talk about Hydra, or now you know, often known as Kinna communities in India, which no doubt we'll have a chance to talk about in a moment. But you know, whether it, across the world we find these experiences that you know, two genders simply isn't sufficient to describe all the gender experiences that exist in the world. So I think, first of all, we have to say no, right? Actually, genders outside of the world are the way that people are. It just, it must be the case. If all of these completely isolated, you know, cultures that you know, didn't evolve together, they evolved separate to one another. The thing that unites them is the people, the people and their experiences of gender as outside of the norm. So no, we have to, I think, consider that genders outside of the norm are simply part of the human experiences, you know, part of what makes us human. So why do we maybe see gender diversity as potentially pathological as a problem to a sane society in inverted commas? I think the answer is colonialism. There's been a couple of really interesting pieces of work on this, and the biggest is by Han and O'Mahony. They published a really important study in 2014, British Colonialism and the Criminalization of Homosexuality in the Journal of Contemporary History. And then they wrote a book, which I bought, and I'm in the process of reading, super fascinating, British Colonialism and the Criminalization of Homosexuality, Queen's Crime and Empire. Sometimes, you know, I work with Sarah and Sarah's just a fan of titles. She's like the best title writer. And I've gained a real, a real kind of uh, appreciation for great titles. This is beautiful. Queen's Crime and the Empire. I mean, perfect. Absolutely brilliant. So essentially what Han and O'Mahony did was they were interested in working out whether Britain was particularly a problem when it came to colonialization and the criminalization of homosexuality. They took a look at like all the places that uh, that uh, have a law banning homosexuality and they found that about half of them were pre uh, like previously british colonies now they basically found that the chance of being a colony of britain increased the chance that you would have a law that banned homosexuality by something like 50% yeah, 46 percent uh, increase in the chance of having a law criminalizing homosexuality. And they found that even when you control for factors like religion, modernity, wealth, inequality, democracy and human rights treaties that the country has signed, even when you take those into account and even when you compare it to other European colonizers, they find that Britain as a colonizer is particularly bad, like has a significant impact on the laws criminalizing homosexuality, which is amazing, 
Britain and the British Empire has spread a specific set of legal codes throughout its colonies and throughout the world based on colonial legal codes uh, that started in Britain, moved to India and Queensland, and that specifically criminalized male-to-male sexual relations and that then criminalized cross-dressing and criminalized gay relationships more broadly and that spread across the world and and created a cultural shift worldwide against you know LGBTQIA plus people. And worse, worse still, is that this was part of a broader uh, effort to oppress and like eliminate indigenous cultural practices. And what we find, what these authors find is that this you know effort to squash out homosexuality to squash out lgbtqia plus people was also part of this you know massive effort to oppress indigenous populations so it, it oppressed huge swathes of cultural practice that otherwise gave space for lgbtqia plus people and their kin to find a place in the world to belong you know, what's, what gets even worse is that not only did, you know, not only did Britain and, you know, European colonizers more broadly, but specifically Britain, oppress indigenous cultural practices and impress, you know, LGBTQIA plus people, but they used the existence of gender and sexual diversity that they witnessed as justification for the exploitation of like Native Americans in the new world in inverted commas, seeing like sexual and gender minority practices as degraded or unhealthy or sinful and use that as an excuse, as a reason, as a justification for the absolute atrocities that they then committed. And as we've already described, you know, pre-colonial Africa, Latin America, you know, the the Pacific Islands, Asia, you know, in pre-modern China, uh, people's gay relationships were considered to be an intellectual refinement. You know, it's considered to be, uh, the general public was indifferent to it, I think. Uh, and in the vernacular, like stories of, of gay conduct among men was considered humorous and positive, and it certainly wasn't morally condemned. But since, you know, colonialism things change dramatically we find that from the 1860s onwards the british empire started to spread this sort of oppressive cultural and legal practice india in queensland all the way through to you know amnesty international highlight that this happened in kenya articles 162 160 165 of the criminal code criminalized same-sex sexual acts um which was you know a direct result of british colonialism uganda a uh, great writer called Sowe Mimo uh, write how Britain's exported homophobia uh, continues to drive health inequalities among LGBTQIA communities now. Amazingly, in, in Africa, in many places, like it's considered that like homosexuality was a, a European and British export, but it's homophobia that was the export that we took around the world. In Uganda, three provisions were introduced in the 1950s under British rule that punished carnal knowledge, in inverted commas, against the order of nature, uh, with imprisonment and indecent acts, with up to seven years imprisonment, unbelievably. Uh, Malaysia, very similarly, uh, section 377 of the criminal code criminalized carnal intercourse against the order of nature in inverted commas introduced in 1936 by british rulers in the federated malay states uh, in malawi a former british colony once again kind of two big sets of laws one uh, that was designed to punish people for being in inverted commas a rogue and a vagabond which again the homeless population of uh, lgbtqa people were disproportionately affected by uh, and then criminal code uh, introduced uh, has led to people like uh, yana uh, jonani who was uh, prosecuted under the law as uh, they 
took a, a mobile phone in in exchange for sex. Uh, they were working as a commercial sex worker, but they were prosecuted for um, uh, for fraud because they were purporting in inverted commas to be female when they were in fact male. Um, unbelievably, so you know, it, I, basically. I can't, I can't even speak to it, but in Malawi 2010, uh, a gay couple was found guilty of unnatural acts and faced up to 14 years in prison under sections 153 and 156 of Malawi's criminal code. Um, again, Britain sort of responsible for all of this. Uh, and of course, in India, uh, one of the... You know, one of the truly awful uh, consequences of British colonial rule um, and the, the Hijra community, who often term themselves the Kinna community, um, were seen by British colonial officials as essentially ungovernable um, and considered them a danger to colonial rule. And so in 1871, the colonial government passed a law that criminalised their existence with the explicit aim of causing their, in inverted commas, extermination. Um, and that law led directly to the marginalisation of stigmatisation of Kinna communities, which continues to this day. Um, it's kind of amazing, right? And then even in places like Cyprus, you know, prior to 1858, the Ottoman Empire sort of, uh, generally speaking, tolerated homosexuality, uh, it tolerated gay relationships. But right up until 1929, when uh, that legal tolerance was finally ended by the incorporation of the British Criminal Law Amendment Act in 1885, of 1885, into Cyprus law. Now, that meant that uh, it made it for the first time since 1858 uh, a crime to be gay in Cyprus. Um, and female homosexuality, by the way, wasn't recognized or mentioned in this law. Just male homosexuality uh, usually tends to be the one that is uh, more criminalized, but uh, still awful. Um, and talk about like you know, the, the long-standing legacy that we have of, of these British laws uh, and colonial rule and its impact, we find that actually really wasn't until uh, 1993 when uh, Alexandros Modinos, who is a Cypriot architect and gay rights activist, uh, won a legal court case against the government of Cyprus at the European Court of Human Rights, which ruled that this section 171 of the Criminal Code of Cyprus, which basically made his uh, gay relationship unlawful, uh, violated his right to a private life, uh, which was protected under the European Convention on Human Rights. Uh, and that was ratified by Cyprus in 1962. So Cyprus had no choice but to then change the law. And still Cyprus didn't actually revise its criminal code to comply with this ruling until 1998, which is absolutely amazing. So it was still unlawful in Cyprus to have gay relationships until 1998, as far as I can tell, which is wild to me. And then in Queensland, we find something very similar uh, in Australia. You know, Queensland State Archives reveal that 548 male-to-male -male, uh, sex court cases and 464 of those were convicted over the 95 years, 1860-1954, which all follow, you guessed it, uh, the an act to consolidate and amend the statute law of Queensland relating to offences against the person uh, in 1960 in 1865, all uh, under you know uh, the heading of unnatural offences following you know, colonial rule once again. Um, now, what's interesting about you know uh, colonialism is that even places that manage to stand up against British colonialism, like Tonga, still felt its impact. Now, Tonga did pass a law uh, that made it uh, basically until colonialism, pre-colonial Tonga, uh, they had a and still have a community of ladies who are people that embrace diverse gender and sexual identities and they lived respected lives within society. But 
with the advent of colonialism, even though it didn't directly influence Tonga, Tonga was never a, a direct British colony, still sort of Christian fundamentalism found its way to Tongan shores and Tongan society still became much more conservative and religious and attitudes towards ladies are, have been tainted by that prejudice and anti-LGBTQIA sentiment is now rife in society. Now, it's punishable within Tonga under sections 136 to 142 of the Criminal Offences Act. Uh, you know, gay relationships between men are punishable with imprisonment for up to 10 years and whipping. But there's no record of that law actually being enforced. And then finally, Samoa, um, influenced once again by British colonialism, started, I think, uh, started as a free state uh, and while it was free um so a moan pre-colonial society was similar to other polynesian societies uh, in that it was more inclusive of gender and sexual diversity um same-sex marriages were known to have occurred and the fafafine which is a cultural third gender in samoa uh, could traditionally marry either men or women and father children um, but it's not so much the case now where reportedly very few Fafafine now opt to marry. Uh, and a lot of that is put down to what started out, I think, as German uh, colonialism and moved on to, I think, somewhere became a joint British and New Zealand colony uh, for a good while in the early 1900s. Um, and it seems to have influenced uh, sentiment and policy pretty heavily. Even in August 2012, Prime Minister... Uh, I hope I pronounced that correctly, uh, scoffed at the idea that uh, that Samoa would follow the lead of New Zealand in legalizing same-sex marriage. Um, he said this, My view as the leader of Samoa on this gay marriage issue is simple. There is no way, none whatsoever, that this issue will ever be considered in Samoa. I wonder whether as we come to the end here, you know, as we start to look back on all the things that we've talked about, and in answer to Helen Joyce's question, you can start to see how much that question seems to have been influenced by colonial thinking, right? This view of, of gender diversity as the aberration that should be stamped out, the, the thing that makes a society sick or, you know, that, that shouldn't have any place in a, in inverted commas, sane society. But here we find that actually gender diversity is simply the truth of human existence. You know, cross-culturally, throughout history, particularly pre-colonially, we find that you know, societies around the world made room for a third gender or made room for, for people with male bodies to take female roles in society or vice versa. And that's because the experience of gender diversity is just a human experience. It unifies us all. And so when we have this view, this kind of dominant view that says, actually, there are only two genders in the, in the world, male and female, and that is a truth of existence and anything outside of that is not welcome, it's not okay. That's the view of gender that we went around the world and advocated and oppressed you know, countless sexual and gender minority communities almost out of existence and in some cases totally out of existence because of our colonial attitudes towards gender and sexual diversity. So I think we need to do better, a lot better. There's a lot of work to be done to try to, I don't know, attend to the damage that we did, but at the very least, we can do our best to create a world now where everyone, everyone can find a place to belong. Thanks so very much for joining me. This is Classroom Psychology. You are very, very welcome here. And I look forward to seeing you as always in the next one.